The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reba Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And we're continuing our James Whale retrospective. Last episode that we did of the retrospective had James Curtis talking about the life of James Whale and going over his um, history, what happened with him, and that kind of stuff. But with this episode, we're starting a multi part stretch where we're going to be covering nine or 10 different movies of James Whale, starting off with the first one that he did. Journey's End. So yes, we're starting at the end to to begin with, but that's just the way the titles go. And um, I'm joined with this episode by the Classic Horrors Club podcast co-host, Rich Chamberlain. How you doing today, Rich? That's, a, that's an introduction. I, I feel like there should be fanfare and stuff with that. I'm doing good. I'm doing great, actually. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, definitely a different film than the last one we talked about. I think I think the last one we covered was the Beastmaster. Yes, last one and, was Beastmaster, uh, and the other one was the Seventh Seal. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we this we we're kind of like going on this ra- crazy roller coaster ride, and and we're entering into a a whole nother uh, chapter of our journey here on the show. So uh, I'm looking forward to talk about Journey's End, a film that I'm willing to bet. Most people probably aren't familiar with, and the biggest reason for that is it's uh, as we'll talk about. I'm sure it's uh, it's uh, not an easy film to find, um, at least not um, in a good print. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But uh, I'm looking forward to to hearing your thoughts on this because this was a first time viewing for me. And, and until you you started this uh, this project and and uh, series of films and, and taking a look at the films of James Whale. I had seen this movie on his list, you know, the IMDb list, but beyond that, I, I knew virtually nothing about it. And uh, and now I've I've learned a, a little bit more about it and uh, had a lot of fun with it actually. And for listeners wondering, like, what other movies to expect during this retrospective, I'll give you an idea. Um, our next our next movie review on the James O. Retrospective, going in chronological order, barring unforeseen circumstances with recording with the um, guest host, Waterloo Bridge with Jeff Owens, Frankenstein with Jeff and Rich, they're going to be tag teaming, The Old Dark House with Ansel Farage, The Kiss Before the Mirror with Rod Barnett. The Invisible Man with Joshua Kennedy. The Bride of Frankenstein with Sam Irvin. Showboat, again with Rod Barnett. And The Great Garrick with Troy... Yeah, Troy Howarth, I think is how it's pronounced. Yeah, Troy Howarth. And then we might be doing the man in the iron mask. I don't have anybody to do that with yet. So if I get somebody else, we'll, we'll put that one in. So that way we'll have nine or 10 movies 
So four of them, the ones that everybody's heard of before, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House, and five of them that not, not as many people know about, maybe six, that, that James Whale did. And then at the end of all of it, um, all the people that guest hosted are invited to come back and participate in the roundtable. Hopefully three or four of them will participate in, and we'll talk about the legacy of the filmmaker, um, the impact on him with film, and so on. So basically it's going to be an 11 or 12 part, including the James Curtis one that preceded this uh, retrospective series. It sounds like an amazing series. I think it's the fun part is to talk about these films that are going to be something new for, for your audience. Now, look, it's always fun to talk Frankenstein, don't get me wrong, and I'm looking forward to, to recording that with, uh, with Jeff and you. But um, I think, you know, the fun thing about your show is that you always take something from a, a different perspective. When you have a guest on your show, you know, you ask questions that normally aren't asked. You talk about movies that, that aren't necessarily as mainstream or as well-known as, as some of the other, you know, bigger movies of their careers. And that's the, the time that I really have, you know, the most fun with the interviews that you do is that, you know, talking about these films, discovering something new, uh, or maybe, you know, it's always fun if, if you're aware, maybe somebody out there is aware of Journey's End and they've never heard anybody else talk about it. They're probably sitting right now thinking, you know, finally, finally, somebody's talking about this movie that they may have been aware of for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Um, and it's just something that, uh, you know, I, I was looking at some, some comments, actually, some people um, on IMDb and and getting a feel for what the general feel for the movie is. And, and several people were like, you know, I never thought I'd ever see a print of this film. Um, and it was something that they had become, uh, you know, they were aware of. And, and I think there was somebody who said that they had actually, you know, uh, that there was a book and that they had read, the, read a book about it and, 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 you know, thought that'd be it. That, that's, that's the closest they're going to get. And then, stumbled upon this print. So I think that, I think that'll be fun. You're covering some films that aren't, uh, aren't as commonly talked about or, or discussed. And, uh, and, you know, like showboat, for example, I mean, everyone talks about the, the remake of showboat, but you know, not too often do people talk about the original and I'm sure your conversation on that, but I'm sure there'll be some compare and contrast a little bit with the, with the more, more, well-known and, and admittedly more popular version of that. But with Journey's End, you know, this is a film that does get, you know, compared a lot to, I think, as I was doing some research on it. It does get compared to All Quiet on the Western Front um, because it came out in the same year. But I think they're two very different films. Um, they make, they're an excellent companion piece to each other, I think. Uh, but they're two very different films. I think if you watch watch one and expecting the other one's going to be exactly like it, you're going to be a little disappointed. Uh, but I think that's that's the fun part is that they're two different films from um, you know different points in the year. And in, in 1930 was a, as a you know you take a look at like 29, 30, 31. There's a lot of transition happening in film around this time, going from silent to the sound films and almost with each, you know, every month, it seemed like there was some new trick of the trade being discovered. And they were realizing in the very early sound films, it's like, you know, we need, we need quiet on the set. And 
you know, the bright lights and the cameras, they generated a lot more noise than they realized. And so they were having to, to come up with new lighting and, and, and come up with ways to make the camera quieter so that all of the, the microphones wouldn't pick up all the, the extra sounds on set. And so it's, you watch these early films and yeah, maybe they're, they're a little, little creaky at times compared to something that maybe was even made a year or two later. But that's part of the fun of this time period is like they were they were creating the magic, you know, and they were advancing it and, and having to come up with new techniques almost on the fly. And so I, I love when I watch an early sound film and and uh, see some of this stuff that that, uh, you know, it takes me back to that time period and what the, had to have been a, an exciting time. Uh, as you and I were talking before we started recording, I mean, just recently seen Welcome Danger, uh, Harold Lloyd's 1929 uh, first sound film. And then we watched Feet First, which was his second in 1930. Man, night and day, night and day. You could, Harold Lloyd was, was an incredibly brilliant filmmaker and he learned so much. And, and what he did wrong in 1929, he had fixed by the time he made his next movie in 1930 and had done it very, very differently. And just in that time span of a year, the, the, the films looked, you know, almost years apart from a technology perspective, but, um, I learned a lot. And, and, uh, and I was, we, we talk about journeys and there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of that uh, early sound film limitations that actually, I think, benefit this film in some unique ways. Yep. And just so when we get listener feedback, um, when Rich mentioned Showboat, we're going to be doing the 1936 version, not the original version, but the, um, the second one, the 1936, not the night, the 1951 version from MGM, I think is the one Rich was referring to to start with, but there was actually a version prior to James Wales version. Um, just to make sure. Oh, I didn't know there was one prior to James Wales version. I, I did not know that. Well, see, now you know. <laughs> now I know. And and the more you know, the more you know. <laughs> yes. And now I know a little bit more than I knew. Yes. And um, to give people the background history with this particular movie, um, James Whale, for a lot of people that you know, listened to the last episode of the, the retrospective, um, started off as a director and theater he was an actor in theater director and so on did many different things in the theater but he was the one that's initiated the production of or directed the production of journey's end in britain and it was based on rc sheriff's script or play and um, was a huge success in britain went all the way up you know the difference to different levels and then kate was that he was asked to come over to broadway to do the production, the director production there. And again, huge success. And because these productions were so successful that he directed, he was then asked to direct the movie version and which led for him to start his movie, his filmmaking career. And um, so he's coming from a stage background going into film and it's, it's makes it kind of interesting. I mean, yes, he did some, filming for the um, audio parts, the talking parts of different films where he came in and helped do the talking parts of it. 
but he didn't direct the whole film. So this was really the full film that he directed entirely and had everything to do with it. I think the the experience that he had, you know, obviously with with the with the stage play comes into play in the movie. Um, you know, the uh, early films, the nineteen twenty nine, nineteen thirty. Um, if you did a lot of location shots, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, the, a lot of these films they were almost being filmed like silent because you know, you, they were still discovering what they, you know, what, how, you know, how the sound worked and, and, and what sounded good and what didn't sound good and, and experimenting with, with, you know, dubbing in voices, um, that, uh, was a, a big, you know, uh, fault with, with Harold Lloyd's 1929 film, Welcome Danger, because they went back and had to do some dubbing, which is standard now, but it was, experimental back then and it it stands out like a sore thumb pulls you out of the moment and you didn't have that in this movie but what you did have was almost like a staged uh appearance because there's so much of the action that takes place in in the in the trenches and in their um their underground quarters you know that obviously you know you get a feeling of what the stage play was like and and with some films that that's a limitation that that can hurt the movie, I think it helped in this movie quite a bit because for me, almost right as the film begins, you you have uh, you have the opening segment you know which is a little hard to follow because the print is is a little dark and and the audio I think uh, was is. Uh, was a little hard to hear for me at the beginning part of the movie. I don't know if you experienced that, but once the once you get into the to the uh, to their underground quarters, um, the feeling of claustrophobia, that claustrophobic feeling is just immediately there, and and that's again some of it was the limitations of, of what they had to work with from a film perspective, but yet I think that's that's one of the the highlights of the film actually is that you, you see this one room and it's where so much of the action takes place, but that is very much what trench warfare was like. I mean, your life existed either underground in this little meeting quarters or, you know, when it was your time, you were manning the trenches and, and your world was, was very small, very dark, very loud, very claustrophobic. And uh, and that's that's captured almost right from the beginning of this movie. And um, as we learned earlier in in the retrospective, James Whale served in World War One, was a second lieutenant, was involved in the trench warfare. So this is something he knew from firsthand experience, exactly what it was like. So he can when going and setting up the um, the stages and having that built and everything else, he knew from firsthand knowledge what he was looking for and what he wanted to do. And um, I, just to give the people an idea of the plot before we get too far into the... Yeah. Um, on the eve of a battle in 1918, a new officer, 2nd Lieutenant Riley, played by David Manners, joins Captain Stanhope's Colin Clive's company in British trench lines in France. The two men knew each other at school, a younger Riley hero-worshipping Stanhope. Why Stanhope has come to love Riley's sister... 
But the Stanhope whom Riley encounters now is a changed man. After three years at the front, he has turned to drink and seems close to a breakdown. Stanhope is terrified that Riley will betray his decline to his sister, whom he hopes to marry after the war. Which leads to some conflicts and other things, and there's some different things I don't want to get into because I don't want to spoil different plot things that happen in the movie, but there is definitely um, battle scenes that are shown later in the movie. There are things some characters do pass on and die as, as, it, as in war and, and, and the emotional toll it takes on the men serving is something I think that was so accurately portrayed, you know, from these guys that were there firsthand, you know, going, you know, some of these guys did serve in the war also that were in the production and having them to go to do it. But James well, knowing what had to be done, I think was able to guide it and help things that we know now. This is, you know, shows people what it was like going on. And I remember when the play was out and when the film came out, it was so popular in Britain and America, but a lot of the British soldiers years later were showing their family members things they couldn't explain to them to understand, saying, this is what it was like. This is what happened. And this is what we were going through day after day in this trench warfare for years. And it finally let these people that were not over there see exactly what was happening or happened to their family member and help them to better understand. And I think that's one of the things that is so hard for us that did not serve in combat in a war is to understand, have any idea of what it was like to be in there. I mean, yes, we could see it and get an idea, but we still are never going to have that firsthand experience. And I'm just thankful that there are people that are willing to do that for us so that we can have a lot of these freedoms that we enjoy. You know, we have the, the National World War One Museum here in Kansas City. And it's if anyone's ever in Kansas City, I cannot recommend this museum enough. It's, it's an incredible museum. I learn so much uh, every time I go to it, actually. Uh, the first time through, I was on overload. Uh, I knew about World War One, but I didn't know about World War One, you know. And um, everything that they've got from, you know, all of the wonderful displays, and, and they've got some great, um, uh, you know, scenery, you know, I mean, they have recreations, and they have a section where, they they recreate the uh, the trenches and uh, and it's done in a way in which you this as you go through the section like you're peeking through like little windows to go look into the trench and they've recently added a virtual reality uh, trench experience and I went uh, through that prior to seeing this movie in fact when you and I were talking about when we were going to record I said. I want to watch this movie after I go experience that. And I'm so glad that I did because as I was watching this movie, I was going back to my experience in this virtual reality. And, and essentially what it is, is you put on the headphones, you put on the, the, the VR gear, which is your eyewear. And they have recreated um, actual trenches so that you're in this virtual reality world. But as you move your hands, you're touching the sides of the trench. You are touching the rats hanging on the side. Um, 
there's the very first thing that, that you do when you walk into it is that you're in um, you're in a balloon uh, you're in you're up in the up in the clouds and as you look around it's 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 just you know 360 degree view it's so realistic as you're looking at other balloons and down below in the cloud cover you're seeing you know blasts of explosions and they have wind blowing on you so you actually feel like you're in the clouds and of course then you come down and you're in the trenches and you know there's at one point you go actually into the the underground area and there's rats scurrying on the floor and there's a, a man sitting there and they at one point like he leaves and then you're enclosed and the doors are closed and like they gave instructions before you walked in it was like you know you'll know when to move forward and you're gonna at one point you're gonna be trapped in a room and what it was and it was you're in darkness and you can kind of see the walls but it's constant explosions constant explosions going off in your ear and it's and it and it gets louder and it gets louder and it's and it's almost and it's like to the point where it's like i was even starting to feel claustrophobic knowing that this was the experience but then just imagining and this was just you know how many over you know 20 30 seconds that it was maybe a little longer that you experienced that and to realize that for as you watched in this movie this was a day-to-day occurrence and I think that's in the movie they have that right there's always that background shelling going on which is adds to the realism and in this experience when I come out you come out of it and you're going into this other part of the trenches I mean they literally have like a hand hanging and you can actually feel the hand and you can feel the the cross that he's hanging on to it's a fantastic experience I think that it's going to start to be a traveling ex- exhibit um, so it Something like that comes to your town. I highly recommend it. But especially if you're in Kansas City, this is an amazing museum and you will learn so much. And this movie, as I was watching it, I just I kept hearkening back to my experience in that virtual reality world that was really just, you know, a snippet of time. And just to know the as you see what these characters, you know, I mean we're like meeting Stanhope, right? You know, he's no longer the young, bright-eyed officer he probably was. He was very much like Riley, I'm sure, when he arrived. And and now we're seeing him in a state where he's he's an alcoholic, and it's and he's using it to help fight off the depression and the fears, and basically to give him courage to to continue to go on. And uh, and I think that that you know what we witness is just this feeling of of you know, the, it's their life and they're, you know, there's moments of laughter and there's, you know, focus on food. You got to eat, you got to, you got to drink. And, and, um, you got the, uh, the character of, uh, Mason, the cook, you know, who's always coming out with, with food, he's coming out with tea and, and it's like, you know, that's their life. Essentially. It's like, you know, eat, sleep and, and fight. And, um, I, you know, I just think that, that as I said before, I think the limitations of, of being an early sound film play into this movie so well because it's, you get that feeling. It's like it's a stagnant camera for a lot of the, a lot of the shots. But when you do leave, 
you know, there, there is, uh, there's some great scenes as well in, in the trenches or when they actually go out to the battlefield. But uh, James Whale, you know, for being his first film, got to say it's an amazing first film right out of the gate. Despite whatever, you know, limitations he was faced with, you know, it's clear that he had a vision and, and it's clear that he had experience that he was tapping into when making this movie. Now, both Rich and I saw this for the first time for this review, and we both saw it via YouTube on a lower quality print. Uh, this is one of those things we, him and I both talked about this prior, like with certain movies, we wish that they would get those restorations and have a nicer copy out there for everybody you know, as best that they can so people can either see it streaming or Rich and I are both firm believers in the physical medium, you know, so it's just, it's just to own it and that kind of stuff to have um, would be great. But Colin Clyde, this was his first movie. And um, he starred in the uh, British version of the play and Whale brought him over to the film production to have him do it. And he played this role so powerfully, you know, so well, because and you looked at it, he was going to drink to get the courage. I also looked at it, he was going to drinking to get the courage, but also drinking to forget the horrors yes. and how many people that he yeah. loses. And it's, it's everybody copes with these things differently. And it's not like you have, this is before PTSD. This is before anything was back then. I mean, I think they used to call it back in the day shell shocked. And, um, and those kind of things, this is before all that was really known. And you, you have another character there who I'm um, second Lieutenant Hibbert, who's going through ailments, trying to get away from there, trying to get out and, and, and how Colin Clive's character Stanhope, you know, is coercing him and trying to get him to stay. And his men really love him. He really cares about his men and doesn't want anybody to go, but he also knows that if, you know, people just can't just like leave and go willy nilly, you know, you have to fight. It's not like yeah. a regular, it's not like a normal day job where you can be like, Oh, I'm, I'm leaving now you're at war. And if you allow everybody to come and go, eventually you'd have nobody to man the line. Well, I almost took it that he was almost like, you know, look, you know, I've had to do this. I've had to endure this. I've made it. You can do this. You know, you've got to do this. It's our duty, you know, you know, even though, I mean, it was, it was, it, it's, you know, his character, it's hard to like in the beginning part of the film. I mean, you, you know that, you know, this is, this is obviously not the same guy that, that, you know, Riley knew before. We didn't get to see that, that version, you know, in, 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 a, in a modern film, right? We would probably see the journey, right? We'd see him as nice guy and then go down the dark path. And then, you know, maybe there'd be redemption at the end. Now, Griffey, we probably movie, would have saw him. We probably would have saw him wooing the sister and all that stuff yeah. at the school. And, and they we probably didn't need it in yeah. this movie. You don't need it. Actually, there's, there's, there's no female characters at all in this movie. No, no. Which I think is, is absolutely perfect for this movie because these men were in, in trenches and they didn't have that. I mean, so you're seeing, you know, Stanhope as, you know, not at rock bottom, but I mean, he's, he's not in, in, in the, in the prime of his condition. And, and I think that, uh, at first you're like, you know, am I supposed to like him, you know, cause like he's kind of a harsh character, 
you know, but we do see during the course of this movie, there is a journey that his character takes on. We do eventually, you know, see some redemption for his character without giving away, you know, the ending of the film, you know, as we, as we near towards some, some big events later on in the film, we, we begin to see that no, he's still human. You know, he may have buried that. He may have buried the, the sensitive side because he had to, he had to, to survive. He had to do that to function um, on a day-to-day basis. And, and what happens when, you know, that human side starts to come to the surface, well, surface, well it, it starts to, to hinder him a little bit. You know, it, it, you start to see the facade break down and you start to see it's like, you know, in reality, he's hanging on by a thread and, and, that thread can be easily, easily cut. Um, and so, you know, that kind of, all of a sudden you kind of look back to how he was in the beginning part of the film. It's like, what he did was, was out of necessity, you know? And I think he realizes like, he knows where he's at. He's, you know, that's how, that's the whole thing, right? When he sees Riley, it's like, that's the big fear. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, he wasn't happy to see Riley because now it's like Riley knows what he's become and he's afraid he became, you know, he says that he's afraid of what his, uh, what his girl, you know, he doesn't want her to know what, what's become of him at this moment, because I think in his mind, he was like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get through this. And when we get to the end, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be better. And I'm going to be, you know, we're going to leave this past. As we know now, that's not the case. I mean, you know, you go down the path that he went, he'll be taking all of that home with him. You know, but in that moment, he's, he's thinking, I'm doing what I need to do to survive. And then I get to go home and I can leave all this behind and you won't have to deal with it. You won't have to talk about it. But now all of a sudden, you know, the future potential future brother-in-law is there and that changes everything. And, and he's very mean and rude to, to Riley and Riley doesn't understand, you know, at first why, why he's that way. Um, I think he does understand towards the end of the movie, but it's a, you know, for, for a period of time, he doesn't understand why, why uh, Stanhope is that way. And that's, that comes, Colin Clive gave it such an amazing performance, um, which becomes even more tragic. I think when you think about how his own life ended just seven years later, you know, uh, which if anyone doesn't know, I mean, that's, you know, alcoholism essentially took Colin Clive, uh, took his life. And, uh, and you begin to wonder, it's like, you know, because I don't know the timeline of his battles, but I know that, you know, um, you wonder if that, you know, what, where he was at with his own personal struggles when he was making this movie. And I don't, I don't know enough about Colin Clive to know that. Do you? I'm not sure. I know it was um, known that there was a, there were a lot of times I'm not sure when movie it started to affect him um, where he would be drunk and they would literally sit him up so they can do over the shoulder shots and that kind of stuff. Not in this film, but in later films. So I think by Bride of Frankenstein, there was definitely some problems I think wasn't there. Cause I mean, I know he had, he had a leg injury, but there was also, also some problems by the, by that. And that's 35. So, I mean, that's, he's entering the final stages of his life, unfortunately at that point. But, so it might not have been a problem in 1930, but 
it does make you wonder, you know, when you see how he's how he's doing here. It it, it does it just it makes it a little tragic. I think what you think of where he himself would end up seven years later. And I know I'm going to give you a chance to bring up those his horror genre ones because I mean you are from the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I mean you know it makes sense. But one movie I wanted to bring up that he was in was Christopher Strong with Catherine Hepburn. And from what I researched, a lot of the, the female actors, like Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, they wanted to work with Colin Clive. He was that respected with his talent and ability as an actor that the female actors wanted to work with this male actor, you know, because they knew they were going to get a great performance from him, and that would make their performance even better. And that way everything, you know, as they say, when you get – two good performances going on at the same time, then you're able to get to that great stuff. Um, so he's, he was known and respected, you know, and 1930 was the one that brought him to um, movies and things like that. But I mentioned a couple of his genre films. If you, if you, I'll, give, I'll pass that over to you, Mr. Chamberlain. Well, I mean, you know, I think the one that he is, um, you know, obviously well known for is is playing uh, um, Doctor. It's Henry, right? I, I tend to get the names mixed. The Henry Frankenstein in uh, Frankenstein, nineteen thirty one, as well as the uh, Bride of Frank, Frankenstein from nineteen thirty five. And I always thought that he gives two very different performances in each of those films. Um, those, you know, those are both iconic films and and uh, equally wonderful, but. You know, with with uh, the second film, he seems a little less animated because he had sustained a, a leg injury. I think he had fallen off of a horse, um, and that meant he had to sit down for a lot of scenes that he would have been standing up, and so he's just not as physical in that film. But he's also there, and I think I'm going to have to say maybe this is the his own personal demons for coming into play a little bit. There's a I've always felt he just seemed less, he seemed more tragic in, in Bride of Frankenstein. Um, it's like after everything he experiences, the character experiences in the first movie, by the time you get to the second movie, you know, he's he's seeing the errors of his ways and he's working with Dr. Praetorius and seems very, very reluctant. But there's there's something in his performance that, that you know, once I've learned kind of where he was at and, and where he would be just two years later, I've always seen something tragic in his performance in The Bride of Frankenstein, which I think adds to the the movie in many ways, but it always makes me look at, at Colin Clive a little bit differently. I think that, uh, you know, he, you know, by that point, you know, I mean, he was, he was clearly already down that path and, and uh, to know where, you know, that essentially it would take his life in 1937 I was just always look at that film differently. I love it. Uh, it's a classic, but his performance in each of those films is very, very different. And so, you know, it's interesting to see, of course, just how dynamic he is in this film and to know that, you know, just a year later, he'd be doing, you know, Frankenstein, which would make him known to a whole genre of fans um, and, and an incredibly iconic film that would, you know, forever kind of entrench him, but also, of course, as we know, would make a star out of Boris Karloff. Um, and it's always interesting to see films from an actor or actress before they, they make it big, so to speak. And before they have that one iconic performance, I always love watching Boris Karloff performances 
prior to Frankenstein is I think you tend to see sometimes or, or Karloff, it's interesting to see Karloff play films prior to Frankenstein because you get to see him, I think, acting um, in, in ways that maybe he didn't have the freedom to after because he, there was an expectation after Frankenstein, whereas you get into like some of his uh, silent film performances and early performances, he gets to, he gets to play things differently. I, I just watched Dynamite Dan last night, which is a, a 1924, I believe, silent film. And Karloff plays the villain, but he plays a very different villain. And then he's, he's not a mad scientist. He's, he's, uh, he's kind of a, kind of a slimy womanizer. He, he ends up stealing money from his boss and framing another guy. And, um, it was, uh, it was a beautiful print of Dynamite Dan. It's, it's a public domain film, but just, just to see his performance in there and just shine, it just makes me think that, you know, sometimes when, when an actor has a, an iconic performance, everyone kind of looks to that film as like, okay, you know, that's, that's the Boris Karloff that I know, or that's the Colin Clive that I know. And it's like, sometimes it's, it's nice to see some of these other films. And I think kind of what you're doing here with James Whale, right? Is you're, everyone knows all the big horror movies that James Whale does, but let's take a look and see what some other films he did as a director. So here we're getting a chance to see a director in his first film and an actor in his first film and, and to see them in something that doesn't involve monsters and, and, you know, little people in, in little glass you know <laughs> shells and, containers it's like no we're seeing them in almost in a real world well it is a real world setting and i think that uh, i think that's that's in this movie is colin clive's amazing performance it's like i feel like you know next time i watch frankenstein or brighter frankenstein i'll be looking back to this movie and and see some of the great performance he gave in this movie and know that yeah he he's not channeling dr frankenstein but when he's Dr. Frankenstein, maybe he was channeling some of what he gave in this in this portrayal of, of Stanhope, especially since there was just about a year apart. Some mm-hmm. of the moments of, of of almost you know some of his moments of like I don't want to say maniacal, but just some of his more manic moments. Um, I feel like there, there's he channeled uh, some of what he had done with Stanhope because obviously having played the character on stage and on film you know, that's going to be with him, and he would have taken that to future performances. Oh, exactly, exactly. And David Manners, who plays Second Lieutenant Riley, I thought was so excellent with portraying the innocent person first time in combat. And he's going around, and they're giving him the tour, and he's like, it's so quiet. I would expect it to be noisier, but it's so quiet. And they're like, it's, it's because it'll come, you know, and that kind of stuff, and and I find it, it when you compare him to everybody else that's there, when you hear the occasional shelling that's going on and that kind of stuff, nobody else even reacts. But you'll you'll see him yeah. give these little reactions, and but everybody else is just it's just a normal thing. It's it's like when I lived in Baltimore City and a fire engine would go by or a police car would go by, you know, when you first, you know, our, our neighbors used to always run out to see the fire engine go by, and it's like oh there goes a fire engine, and it was just kind of like. You know, you're used to it. It's just like, oh, that's just the you're normal thing. And yeah, it doesn't bother I, I, yeah, you. Yeah, I, I went to go uh, visit Jeff a few weeks ago, and he lives in, in uh, downtown Minneapolis. And so 
a little different than living in the burbs, right? So, you know, I'd have the window open and there was always activity going on outside. And, and, and you know, whether it was a, a trash truck in the morning or uh, or there was a, a, a siren or something, you get used to it. I had that when I lived in college. I I lived in the dorms in the big city, right? And I'd hear the police helicopters at night and stuff. And then when I went home over the holidays, I laid in my bed down in the basement, staring up at the ceiling. I couldn't get to sleep. It was too quiet. You know? Yeah. Riley comes in, right? It's like, he's this, he's kind of like the new guy at work, right? You got all the old jaded people who've been there for 10 or 20 years. And he's like, gosh, I'm just so happy to be here. And I'm the new guy. And I was like, I want to make everybody proud. And you're like, I'm just clocking in my eight hours and want to go home. You know, <laughs> it's, it's that, that experience of here's the new guy on the block. You know, it's like, you know, and you just kind of have to look and smile like, yeah, I remember when I was that young and idealistic, you know, and well, we see his journey, you know, and, and, a, and a, you know, develop and, and he does take a, a he does get less, he, he ages a lot, I guess is what I'm trying to say. He, he grows up and he's a little less idealistic and, and a little less, I would suspect, eager and, and a little less ready to fight after he experiences it for the first time is that, oh gosh, I'm, I'm ready for this. Trepidation. I think one of the great scenes is, uh, we haven't talked too much about the, the character of Osborne yet, but mm-hmm. the scene between Raleigh, uh, Riley and, and Osborne, where Osborne kind of knows what they're getting in for and, and a particular mission that they're given. And he's just, he's taking things out of his pockets and he's putting it on the table. And Osborne is doing it very matter-of-factly. You know, it's like, you know, well, this, this is the mission that I'm on, and I'm just taking this out and this out and this out. And the look on Riley's face is just puzzlement and then a little bit of terror thrown in because now he's beginning to realize it's like, you know, kind of like, what have I gotten myself in for? What really is going to happen? Because he's seeing how Osborne, who has just always been this almost like father-like figure to the, to the, to the men down there, and very matter of factly, he's like he knows he knows exactly what 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 they're going to be faced with, and and Riley doesn't know, but he's that look on his face is like that the innocence is just almost melting away from his face as as he's watching Osborne do that. An amazing scene, very impactful scene, and and not just the watching part, but the dialogue because Riley keeps wanting to talk talk about what they're going to do, and Osborne. After they after they've gone through, it's like, well, you know what he says. Now we're not going to talk anything about that. We're going to talk about other stuff. And every time Riley yeah. would bring something up, Osborne would def- would never answer the question and would bring up something else until finally Riley realized, and they both were on the same page of yeah. Let's focus on something else. Let's focus on something that that is not war related, not mission related. And, and then they both were able to do that and uh, enjoy that as they're counting down the time. Cause they would ask him how much time we have left six minutes, how much time we have left four minutes, two minutes, yeah. 30 seconds. It's time to go. And when Ian McLaren, who plays Lieutenant Osborne was smoking a pipe and they're getting ready to go. And he looks at his pipe and he says, it's a shame to leave a pipe when it's got such a golden um, ember thing, you know, with the, 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 in the, in the hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
going and, and you just and it's just he just know you because you never know when mission is going to be your last mission yeah and he understands that and um Stanhope before that whole scene started when he was talking to Lieutenant Osborne before Riley came up into the into the or out from his bunk area and and when he's when Lieutenant Osborne was asking Stanhope make sure if anything happens to me this gets mailed to my wife he goes well nothing's going to happen to you you're going to come back you know and that kind of stuff and because during the part of the movie Lieutenant Osborne has been Captain Stanhope's lifeline, his connection, his ground, the person that's keeping him grounded. And, um, and this person means so much, you said so much to everybody because he is the father figure, you know, to all of them, the glue that's holding them together and played so well by Ian McLaren. It's just, and I'm looking, you know, who for people, he's got a lot of credits I just picked two of them out, and in some of these, he's uncredited. Some of them, he has a bigger role. The Hound of the Baskervilles, and the Man I in the Iron Mask. I recognized him when I watched this; like he looked familiar to me, and I didn't know. As like, well, yeah, because I had just seen that in the last year or so. So, yeah, he he gives a great performance in that film. He's just a great actor, and it's just given a role, and he just plays it spot on. Yeah, it, if I was in, I kept thinking to myself, I'm in a trench, and I'm, I'm in, in, in this kind of warfare. I, he's the guy that I'd want there. He's a guy that I would have latched on to because he would have, he would have been able to to get you through the moment. He'd been able to keep you focused on the task at hand. He'd be, he'd be that father figure. He'd be that mentor. He'd also help keep you sane. I think it was like, you know, let's not, as he said, he knew what they were headed into. It was like, why focus on it? And, you know, there's, there's nothing to be gained. We know what the mission is. We know that, you know, our chance of coming back as soon as we walk out of that trench, you know, chance of our, our survival goes, you know, exponentially downward. You know, it's, it's the chance of us coming back is, is next to none. Um, just basically you've got a big target on you as soon as you walk out of the, out of the trench and, and it's like, why focus on that? You know, let's focus on something else. But then it's at the same time, he sees, he realizes, you know, and he's trying to be positive, trying to focus on other things, but yet he's also, he knows, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to, it's almost like he doesn't want to scare Riley, you know, he just like, you know, let's, let's talk about something different and almost, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to psych himself out. You know, it's like, well, I don't want to talk. It's almost like he doesn't want to talk about it. It's like, I don't want to talk about that. Let's, let's talk about something different. You know, I know what I have to do and I know that it's, it's, it's not looking good, you know? So why let's, let's focus on something else. And then when it's time, we'll focus on that. Yeah. His, his character is, is what I, I, I would love to have had, you know, if I had to be in that situation and, um, yeah, it just uh, absolutely, obviously, very much a father figure to Stanhope as well. You know, Stanhope because uh, I didn't they call him uncle, I think, or some yeah. some of them called him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he was just that. Um, he was a grounding force for I think everybody, and I think that uh, you know, uh, I think he kept everybody focused and 
and gave uh, everyone maybe a measure of, of hope. That's interesting when you said hope, and I'm thinking of Stan Hope's last you know name, Stan Hope. You know, it's just uh, yeah. I wonder if that was intentional or not to have hope in there, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. You never know how characters are named. Sometimes it's willy nilly. Sometimes there's That's a true. meaning. That's true. Very true. Yeah. And um, along those lines, when it first opens up in this area of the officers' quarters, that's in the bunk, that's in the trench. Lieutenant Osborne's character comes in there and. He's talking to the captain that they're relieving, you know, for the six days that they're going to be there or whatever, and that kind of stuff. And I know some people ding the movie a little bit from what I've read because it's like, well, it's just about men talking about this and that and eating and that. It's like, it's that's the whole point. It's a character study. And yeah. it's, it's just, this is like a different war, a war movie different than any other war movie that we've all seen, you know, where it's um, battles and all this other stuff. This is more about, the men, what they're going through. I was fascinated about when they were talking about the cockroach races, because when they got to the camp, there was a cockroach there and they spend, I don't know, two or three minutes talking about the cockroach races and, and, and the tips that the guys like the captain's telling the, the lieutenant about the hell to, to get the cockroach to go faster so you can, you can win and this kind of stuff. And you think about it, the entertainment that you can do in these situations is extremely limited when you're in a war situation and you have to Very find limited, ways yeah. to entertain yourself and cockroach racing would be one because cockroaches are everywhere. They're, you know, that, that's, yeah, that scene, you know, to me, it, it made me think of something you might find in a Tarantino film, right? Tarantino's notorious for, for adding all this, you know, what many people can, you know, consider to just be, you know, fluff dialogue sequences. But that's never Tarantino's intent. I love that about Tarantino films. Um, because it's it's oftentimes it's just it's you know in movies, right, you always see see the characters that are moving through um the big moments of the movie and you, and you don't sometimes see the small moments, the moments of, of five minutes of random dialogue with the character that ultimately, you know, may not have anything to do with the rest of the movie, but yet if you pay attention and if it's well-written and well done, it's you're, you're adding to that character. You're adding depth to the character. You might even find out something about the character, you know, just through that five minutes of dialogue. And as you said, there was a purpose for that, that sequence. It wasn't just a, random let's let's just have a cockroach dialogue in here no it, it's to show you know there's not a lot to do down here i mean even like i would suspect you know even if you had a book you know i mean reading would be hard because there's not very many candles down there because you can't have 20 30 candles in there because what happens it starts to fill up with smoke and it starts to to affect the air so even that your light down there is is very very minimal you know um incredibly oppressive i would think you know to, to be living in there and, and just day after day night after night they recreated that, that virtual reality the thing where we went into this room you know which was basically to to recreate the idea of like look here you are you got a little light you know it's a little rat scurrying on the floor and the one guy leaves and he's like obviously panicked before he leaves, leaves, closes the door. 
and you're there, right? And then it's just the sounds and the explosions and it gets darker and darker and darker. And you realize it's like that that's your world, you know? Um, and and it, the shell shock. I mean, just the the psychological damage that, that was done to so many people in that type of warfare. Every war has, has different aspects, you know, and World War One was was you know devastating in regards to the to the trench warfare and and, and the the ramifications that it had, not just physically but mentally on people. War has always got some type of physical or mental damage, but every war has has something unique to it. And what we, we see through this, the a look at World War One is just uh, one of the best World War One films out there. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front gets a lot of hype, and, and it came out later in the year. And I think that All Quiet on the Western Front, you know, in some ways might be a better film because it had, you know, I'm going to assume that it had a, a bigger budget just based on what we see in the movie. There's there's a lot more camera movement, and you do get a character study in that, but there's also a lot more going on, and and your landscape, you know, um, in All Quiet on the Western Front is is incredibly. It's a much broader. You're going from location to location, and it's a vastly different film, but it, it is an amazing film. This Journey's End is kind of like it's it's in that same world but it's a little corner of the world. You see a lot more of the world in All Quiet on the Western Front, but this is just a little teeny tiny corner, a, li a little, you know, trench and a little room. And in some ways is almost more realistic than, than All Quiet on the Western Front. They're both two great films. They're great companion pieces. I think you could easily watch one and the other. Um, I'm not sure which one you'd want to watch first and which one you'd want to watch second. Um, I feel in some ways, if you watch All Quiet on the Western Front first and maybe get some of the background for what's happening and, and some, of the, some of that, it might make certain things come into focus for you a little bit better. But, you know, on the flip side, maybe seeing kind of like, you know, it's, it's a nonlinear storytelling. If you watch Journey's End, you kind of see how how a story might end for characters and then go back and see, oh, here's a broader landscape. Um, Journey's End might be something you watch first and then you fill in the stories and the gaps and stuff by watching something like All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, you know, All Quiet has, has been given restoration and, and is much more visible. Uh, my first time watching that actually was uh, when I was in college working uh, at the Media Resource Center in the evenings, there was a, a, a World War I class, and the, the teacher that taught it was would be playing films from World War I, and my job was to run the projector. And I'd get to sit there and watch all these, all these films. I'm getting paid, you know, to sit there and watch these movies. And so I saw Quiet on the Western Front, and I saw Wings for the first time. And, you know, I'm a projectionist. I think that's cool in itself. But not only that, I'm getting to sit in the back row and watch and, and, and learn about World War One. It's almost like I took the class because he was having films with great frequency. And, um, you know, I don't know. I can't remember all the films that he played. Uh, I don't believe that this is one that he did play. But, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's definitely in line with the other films that he played. And, and I just remember the... the uh, 
the feeling of my first time watching All Quiet on the Western Front, different than my experience with watching Journey's End because they're two very different films. This one, of course, is coming later in life, and I've learned a lot more about World War One and and about life in general. And I and I think it's a wonderful character study um, that I think you don't. If I recall, I don't think you quite get that with All Quiet on the Western Front because it's a different type of film. But they're they're two different uh, different visions of a, a very tragic war. So, uh, and I know that there's a lot of other World War one films out there, 1917, which just came out a couple of years ago, is an, an amazing film. I love that movie. And obviously, you've got modern technology and a uh, very, very, very different film, but one I'd highly recommend as well as people, if they're interested, they watch this film and start getting interested in World War One films. There's a lot out there, uh, and each one is a little bit different. Yeah, what I like about this film, and I think what makes it hold up to me so well, is you're dealing with the issues with the character study that still are applicable to other wars, other situations. I mean, um, and those kind of things, you know, and how people are able to handle the day in and day out stress of that situation where you never know if today is going to be your last day, you, you know, and, and then, but it's also yeah. not all, constant battle it's there's a lot of boredom mundane you know the mundane things that you have to do and um, when i was a campus police officer i remember you know going for the training and that kind of stuff and 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 the the first sergeant when he was training us it's like you know 99 percent of the time you're just going to be doing paperwork and being bored but that one percent of the time your heart's going to be racing you're going to have some action and that kind of stuff and we had an active shooter situation on campus where somebody was shooting at one of the buildings and that kind of thing and happened overnight and um there's only i was one of the two officers on duty so you just never know when those situations are going to come up and what you're going to do and how you're going to handle it and but then to see the reactions of different people that were not even there and how they handled the stress compared to the two of us that were there and handled it. It was, it was, it was interesting when you look at it and you think, yeah, and yeah. you think about the, and you peel it back. It's like, um, we seem to be less affected than those that weren't there. And cause we were there and as you go to do it, it's kind of like, Osborne, you have a mission. You have to protect the students. You have to go and do this. Yeah. You don't think about, you don't, you don't take the time to think about all these other factors that could go into play. You know, you go and handle, go and handle the job at hand, and and take care of it. And um, and, and thankfully for us, the person, you know, the, the call came out as an active shooter in a building. Is the shooter was shooting at a building, and left the premises by the time we arrived at that building. Um, it was basically some kind of drug deal that happened off campus that went bad and the student ran back into a a building and the person just took some shots at the building, you know, from what we were able to piece together later on. But it was just, um, but when you get those calls, it's just, you know, you're going in, you're just like, this, you know, you just go and do it and try to do the best you can. Follow your training. That's all you can do. You just think about your training and just go into it. I want to talk a little bit about the the character of uh, Trotter, uh, played by Billy Bavan. Um, mm-hmm. 
a little bit, a little bit of a comedic relief in, in this movie. I mean, just kind of the way he, he, he presented his character. And I, you know, this is a, a thing where I did not know really who he was, but yet I have seen him in a lot of films. He's in a ton never, of films. I mean, yes, <laughs> and I never connected. My first experience, well, I guess not my first, but my, my realization of, of who he was, you know, as an actor, actually came before uh, watching this movie about a month ago, um, because I've been contributing to some GoFundMe campaigns for um, silent film uh, restorations. And um, so that once you, once you do one, you kind of get on the list and people start, you know, popping up and recommendations. And there was one about Billy the Van. He's a silent film comedian. And um, I don't believe I've seen any of his work, but he did, um, but he did uh, silent film, uh, silent film comedies that are being restored by a gentleman over in England and uh, I didn't get in on the on the campaign because I had the question of like, well, is the Blu-ray region free or not? You know, and and uh, I didn't get the answer until after the campaign had, had been up, so I kind of missed out. But I, you know, it's like who is Billy Bavan? I'd never heard of him, but then he was showing tons of clips, and I'm like, wow, this is a funny guy. Well, then of course, you know, then I, I see him in this movie, and I'm like, okay, now wait a minute, you know, this is kind of interesting. <laughs> I just discovered who he was a month ago. And here he is in this movie. And so then I start looking at his IMDb credits. I'm like, okay, now wait a second. You know, I, I, earlier this year, I saw him in uh, a study in Scarlet, 1933 Sherlock Holmes movie with Reginald Owen. And then of course, I've seen him in all these other universal films, Dracula's daughter, the invisible man returns. He was in the 41 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the return of the vampire, the lodger, couple of Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films, The Lost Patrol with Boris Karloff, you know, which I haven't seen for years and now I want to go watch, you know, because that's a great movie too about a different, different war and different aspect of it and Karloff in a different performance. Um, I, you know, it's just kind of crazy. Sometimes, you know, you watch these films and you're like, well, who is this person? All of a sudden you, it opens up this whole other world. And this weekend, you know, as you and I are recording this, you know, um, there's a, an event called Cinecon on or Cinecon Line, the Cinecon Film Festival, which has been going for more than half a century now. They're doing their second annual online event because of the pandemic. And they're actually showing a Billy Bavan comedy this weekend. And just now this name is just keeps popping up. I, I, I know people, other things like that happen to people. Like once you discover somebody, all of a sudden it's just like, wait a minute, you know, it's kind of like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know, you, you start realizing it's like I knew him, but I didn't know him. And in this movie, you know, he is this this you know kind of lighthearted character, uh, gets the job done. But you know, he's he's that person that that's going to make you laugh a little bit. Um, and and I think that's another person you'd need in the trenches, right? I mean, you'd want that Osborne character to to guide you and to be that father figure figure that uncle if you will but it also help you to have that that person over there that's going to help make you laugh through moments so like you know you're stuck in a hole and and you know you're eating the same food for the most part day in and day out you know and and it, it's constant barrage but here's somebody that's going to make you laugh and most war films 
have that comedic relief character to to one degree or another. Um, but it was uh, it was interesting to see him in, in in this movie. I don't know what your experience was with Billy Bavan, but um, you know, it was, it's somebody now all of a sudden I'm very very aware of, and now I want to see some of the silent comedies. I was like I'm I'm totally unfamiliar with his work, and uh, you know, and this is another example of you know. There's always a Charlie Chaplin or a Buster Keaton film out there, but there's a lot of other films that are sitting on the shelf that aren't known to people. And and Journey's End is, is one of these films, right? It's a movie that never been given uh, a home media release. Um, the only copy that's out there is the same copy that seems to pop up everywhere. Because I know I was kind of looking some different places trying to find the best print, and, and I the I think there's a copy on archive.org. It's the same copy that's on YouTube. There's multiple copies on YouTube. It's the, it's a, an apparent off air recording um, that I think may have been. Um, uh, and I, and I, I don't want to say that it was a U.S. recording because I think somebody, one of the comments on IMDb commented that what they saw several years ago was actually an off air recording from maybe in, in England. Um, and so I don't know if that's what this is or not, but there was a few points in the YouTube print where like Journey's in title card, not title card, but like a bumper card pops up. So it appears as if it was an off-air recording uh, because it does look like a poor film print that was on VHS and maybe a VHS dub. And so it, there are some scenes that, that hinders the perform the overall enjoyment of the film, the early start of the film there's some dialogue that's a little harder to make out it's kind of dark i think some of the the war sequences um you know make it a little bit hard to, to completely understand what's going on because again it's a poor print generally speaking once the, they're in the 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 trench and the you know i keep wanting to call it the dugout <laughs> you know the the underground area where it's a little easier to understand the dialogue is, is clear for the most part. Visually it's, it's, it's easier to make out. I think it's some of those action sequences and those exterior sequences that might make it a little bit hard for some people, but hang in there because that's only a small part of the film. It's, it's the, the, most of the film is easy to make out, but it is a film that is in desperate need of restoration and in desperate need of, of getting a, a good release from somebody like a Kino Lorber or maybe a Criterion. <clears throat> the only thing I can think of is that the, maybe it's rights issues because it was a joint American British co-production. So I'm not sure who owns the rights to it at this point. Um, and, and where that print would, would lie. I don't know if that's, cause that's sometimes what causes the delay in, in the film's restoration. It seems like everybody who's seen it loves it. And you've got people like Colin Clive and James Whale involved, so it immediately draws attention to the movie. Um, so there must be some reason why, you know, that this movie has is, is not gotten somebody's attention for respiration. And, and I'm going to, you know, go out on a limb and say it may be rights. Rights issue may be preventing it. But hopefully at some point we can get that corrected because I'd love to see uh, a, a better print of this movie. I, I would buy it in a heartbeat. Now, Billy Bevan, because you brought him up, 
I, I, I was when I saw his I'm you know his list of credits, which is like I said, it, I'm not kidding. It is it is a huge amount of credits. Yeah. The two that stood out to me were different than you: A Tale Two Cities and Bringing Up Baby, which I just watched not that long ago again. And um, you know, and some, some of these credits he has big roles. Some of these are like small yeah. roles and yeah. parts. But he's just in things that you have seen. If you're a movie lover, you have seen this actor in a lot of classic films and probably didn't know it. And the other person who's comic relief, private Mason, the cook, Charles, Charles K. Gerard. I thought, I thought for sure you're going to bring him up because he's also in another fine mess. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't, I didn't catch that. Now I'm trying. I've just—it's been about a year since I've seen that. So now I'm trying to figure out what character he would have played in that one. I'd have to go back and look. Well, you're thinking of that though. Um, this character is—and you brought him up a little bit earlier on—is the cook, and and it's kind of an ongoing thing where um, he's not very creative uh, with with his cooking skills and other stuff. But he does clean the utensils nicely. You know, he keeps it. <laughs> he keeps things clean. <laughs> And he comes in there and he's like, I don't want to get out. This is why, you know, like it, it has these ongoing things and it's, you need these two characters, Trotter and Mason to undercut the seriousness of what's going on so much. Yeah. And, 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 and yes, they're humorous and it's not like ha ha laugh moments. It's just humor there to, 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 you know, counterbalance a little bit of the seriousness. And I think it's, it's not like, it's not like some character, you know, when we're saying they're, they're the comedic characters, it's not like you're going to be laughing and slapping your no. knee. It's just, there's humor. there. It's lightening the, it's lighten lightening the mood, the mood. Mm-hmm. lightening the mood just a little bit to, to, yeah, it doesn't turn it into a comedic moment. It's just enough to like, because I mean, there are moments in this movie that are, that are admittedly, they're dark. And and they they can be a little oppressive, and so sometimes you you need that that moment of of, of you know laughter to, to just break break the uh, the tension a little bit, just bring a, a sliver of, of light into an otherwise kind of dark story. Because by the time you get to the final act of the film, there's definitely no laughter going on. I mean, there's there's you know things definitely take a turn and. and um, you know, your journey to get there, um, you, you have those moments where you have a little bit of, little bit of, uh, of levity thrown in into what is otherwise a uh, uh, very serious, very serious film. And the other main actor that I talked a little tiny bit about early on, Hibbert, the character Hibbert, played by Anthony Bush, Bushell. Um, he was the one who was going through, was like, Oh, I don't feel well. And it was showing signs. Yeah, like he's just, yeah. he'd been there for three months and was just like, I, I got to get out of here. I don't know if you knew this or not, but he played, he was in the movie, the Scarlet Pimpernel, the return of the Scarlet Pimpernel and the ghoul besides a whole bunch of other credits. So he had a very, this is one of his earlier works, but he had a very successful career in movies. You know, going beyond. What does he play in the, in the ghoul? Does he play the, the, the male lead. 
I'm trying to it's I'm trying to remember the ghoul, right? I mean you've got I know and again another Karloff film. Um Ernest Thesiger's in that, but I know that there's there's a male lead, I think. That must that must be the character that he plays. In the ghoul he plays Ralph Morland. Yeah, I can't remember the character's name. And but in Scarlet Pimpernel, a, he plays Sir Andrew Folks. I've I've seen the Scarlet Pimpernel, but it's been so many years. I couldn't tell you one memory I have about it. It's probably been forty years since I've seen it. Yep. So he's so it's one of those. What I'm saying is he's he's had a, he had a long career. A lot of these actors, except for Colin Clive, because of his. Um, troubles that we already brought up and we'll bring up probably in, in when we talk about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, you know, had long careers, either some of them starting prior to this movie as yeah. in the case of um, Bevan, as you brought up, you know, and, and of course um, with um, Ian McLaren and that kind of stuff, um, where they, they had their career started way earlier and then went in from the silent movies into the talkies. Um, some of them had careers in theater prior to this, and but a lot of them had lengthy film careers from this movie. This was like a launching pad for a lot of careers. Like a lot of them got this was like the one that got them noticed, you know. And it's like, oh, they can do dramatic work. Like for Trotter, as you said, his comedic work here was probably showing his dramatic side. You know, here he's in this drama, this character yeah. study, and it shows another side of him, and it, and people were like. Oh, he can do other things, you know, besides this and this and this. Like with Robin well, Williams. Well, considering that he had done, yeah, you know, this is probably one of his first, if not his very first, sound film. You know, um, so I mean, it, that was probably, you know, maybe a bit jarring for people to see. It's like, well, wait a minute, you know. Uh, I think that that's always fascinates me as over the, you know, our our podcast, the Classic Horrors Club. You know, I always will take a look at people's careers and sometimes you know some of these movies it's kind of like i'm, I'm like the the angel of death because i'm saying you know this actor died when he was 22 this actress died when she was 33 it fascinates me though when you see these these people it's like they they did 10 movies right and you never saw them again and then you have this actor over here who does 400 films and you take a look at the the vast you know amount of work that they did and then you start to say oh i've seen that movie or that movie or you know, I, you know, you begin to realize, like I, I did with, with Billy, is like, yeah, it's like, I've seen him. I just didn't know that's who he was. I didn't bring the connection of, like, all these horror movies that he did to this silent film comedian who was part of a GoFundMe campaign that, to me at the time, I thought, oh, this is somebody brand new. I've never heard of him. And then to realize, it's like, no, I knew exactly what he was. Because obviously they didn't talk about all of his other appearances, you know, because they were focusing on, hey, this is a restoration of silent films that haven't seen the light of day. And, and you know, you know, well, you know, in some cases, you know, some of these silent films in the 20s haven't seen the light of day since then. You know, we're closing in on on 100 years that these movies, they got released, they got seen and they got shoved into an archive. And that's the last that's the last we've ever seen of them. So you get to see, especially it's always fun to me to see an actor. In a, in a different capacity than you might be familiar with them. I, I was part of a GoFundMe campaign for William Everett Horton, who, not a household name, but 
if I was to show you and, and list some movies from you know his his IMDb, you'd say, oh yeah, I've seen this movie, this movie, and then realizes like, well, actually, he was a leading man in silent comedies in the 1920s that haven't been seen since the 1920s. They got seen, they got played, they got recognition, and then his career took a different path. And then these movies sat on a shelf until. You know, uh, Ben Modell is the guy who rediscovered him and said, hey, these, he works for the Library of Congress. And he's like, I want to do a, you know, a, a release and, and have some of these some of these films get uh, get shown for the first time in almost a century. And uh, then it had so much success that it went from five films to let's just do all eight films and realize that, you know, with a little bit of restoration, some of these other films that they didn't think were in good condition actually were better condition than they thought. And got released so it's always fun i think to, to take a look at these actors and this movie is is full of familiar faces that you might not think are familiar and some of the ones that stand out you know it's always fun to discover somebody new and i know some listeners are probably saying why why don't we spoil the movie or whatever yes it's a 91 year old movie um it was remade recently came out a few years ago so i mean that there's a there's a more current version i've yet to see it i've heard good things about it though um, yeah. so I'm looking forward to watching that one. I didn't want to see it prior to this review because I didn't want to have any other, other influences going into the review with trying to compare and contrast yeah. the two styles. Cause obviously they're, they're, you're talking a almost 90 year difference in technology and filming and so on, um, going through it, but it's uh, rich. Would you recommend this to, um, the average person? journey's end i would i i would I, I would highly recommend this movie you know with the understanding that um the only copy that's that as we record this the only copy that's out there is going to be the youtube copy it's not a a perfect print but it is watchable um you know get past the first for me anyway the, the first few rough moments of the film where some of the dialogue is a little harder Hang with it. Once you get into the trenches, it's easier to, to listen and understand and see what's going on. And then um, I know that the, the the YouTube print, when it ends, you don't see the end pop up at, at, at the very end. And I, I worried, it's like, was there something else after? And so from what I can tell through reviews online is that it is complete. It's just missing that final you know title card saying the end so i mean pretty much you you get the feeling that it's the end but you know there was that question well is there something else well no there, there wasn't so i highly recommend it and maybe if we get the word out and, and maybe get some conversation happening maybe somebody somewhere will will start to look into to restoring this movie and i would uh, i would absolutely you know, support it and, and put the word out and, and uh, would purchase it from Criterion or whoever. It's a film that needs to be seen by more people and uh, and highly recommend it. Absolutely. What about you? Oh, I definitely recommend it. And I think when you talk about how it ends, I know, I know from reading when he talked about how the play would end, the play would end, the crowd would be silent, and then, then it would get a standing ovation. When it ends, I mean, it ends i mean it is it's just it's um it's 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 one of those things you're just you're just like 
Whoa, and I think that fits with the whole purpose, the whole point of the movie is. is yes. And it, it fits so well with it. And it was um, written so well by um, Sheriff, um, who also, I never mentioned, was nominated for an Academy Award for um, screenplay adaption for um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips later and in, in stuff like that. So this is, Oh, wow. Okay. So Very cool. So there was a lot of talented people involved in this. Of course, Sheriff was not involved in the film production. He, was, he did the play. Um, but go, as Rich already said, you're going to be seeing um, a print that's not the great. It reminds me when I was growing up and I used to try to get one of those stations you had trouble getting and you're using the, the aluminum foil on the rabbit antenna, you know, to, 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 to get it the right way. And you got a viewable yeah, yeah. version of it. And you are happy as all get out. And I think if you go with that mindset, if, if you've, if you experienced that before, then you're going to be perfectly fine. It is a viewable version. It, it's, is it pristine? By all means, no, but you're not paying anything for it. It's on YouTube. <laughs> so it's not like it's costing yeah, you I any money. That, I think that, yeah, for, for anyone that's of our age or, or older, we grew up in that, pre-cable TV time where you were just happy to, to see the, to see a film. Right. And I, I, you know, I have, I, I say this now, I think you can watch a movie with snow, right. With the static in the snow. I, I do it now if I had to, it's, it's that to me is a better experience than watching something that has like the digital breakup. You know, um, I find that hard to, to sit and watch something that's breaking up digitally but we grew up in that time period where, yeah, just the antenna and you get what you could and you're happy to get it. And, and, um, I think that, that anyone who, who loves films will, will look past any imperfections in the print and will be able to focus and, and enjoy the movie. And, uh, then you will probably come out of it like us thinking, you know what? Okay. Now somebody restore this so we can see a pristine copy and, and, um, that's where I think maybe there'd be even subtle things that we missed in a darker print. When you see a, you know, a better print, you might see something that you didn't see the first time. Hopefully we get that. You know, I always, I worry that we're in this, this stage now of, of home media where um, we're going to get to a point where, you know, some of this stuff may not see the light of day. We you know early days of DVDs. It's like, it seemed like everything was coming out and things we didn't know about. And now it's, it's, you know, there's only a handful of companies out there putting out, putting out stuff. And there's certain things that we keep seemingly like we're getting another, another copy of, Hey, guess what? The universal horror films are coming out now in, in 4k. And I'm like, you know what? I, how many versions? I mean, again, I love the universal horror films, but how many more versions of that do we need? Why not something that we haven't seen get released? You know, that's, I know I'm speaking to the choir because I know other people are out there like that. It's like, you know, I love that stuff comes out and, and in better, better prints, but I'd be happy for some stuff that we don't get to see very much. And this is one of those movies that does get, it deserves to get talked about more. And hopefully by us talking about it here, uh, we'll introduce this movie to some people who will seek it out and uh, enjoy it and uh, offer up some feedback and maybe some online conversation about this movie I know that uh, you posted that you watched it on Facebook and several other people immediately were aware of it. Um, and, uh, but I know that there's going to be probably more people who aren't. So hopefully this will expose the movie to 
a whole new new set of fans and uh, open up some conversation. And Rich, give people the Reader's Digest version of the Classic Cars Club podcast, so that way they have an idea of what your show that you do with Jeff Owens is about. Uh, we've been doing the show now. It'll be five years come January 2022. Uh, it's a monthly show that Jeff and I do where we, uh, we talk horror movies. And we have usually a theme. Uh, we usually cover three films. Um, sometimes we'll highlight an actor. Uh, sometimes we'll, you know, pick films like uh, maybe we're going to talk about movies that have a satanic presence. Or maybe we're going to talk about uh, the films of uh, Boris Karloff or, uh, you know, sometimes lesser known stars. Uh, we did our drive-in feature this past summer where we actually um, recreated a drive-in experience by taking a, a triple feature from an actual drive-in ad um, from, the, from the past. So uh, we just, we sit and we talk movies and, and uh, have a good time. We have, uh, Jeff does a, a video clip, a video condensed video version that's available on YouTube. And uh, the show typically runs about two and a half, three hours at most, most months. And um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can easily find it. It's out there on uh, SoundCloud and, and uh, on Apple Podcasts. I was going to say iTunes, but that's not the correct terminology anymore. Um, and of course, uh, if you're on Facebook, uh, you can follow us. We've got a Facebook page there as well as um you know, I've got uh, Kansas City Cinephile. We've got our respective websites where we hype it up. Uh, I'm at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Any new episodes always hyped up there with links and where to find it. Yeah, so listeners, um, definitely listen to the podcast. Seek out the um, the blog spear and find out the stuff that they're doing. Um, the next episode of the retrospective will be Waterloo Bridge with Jeff Owens, and then that the, the episode following that will be Jeff and Rich with me talking about Frankenstein. Uh, so you'll, you'll you'll get to hear them later on in the retrospectives as we go through um, this journey of James Whale. But of course, at this particular episode, we've reached the journey's end. But listeners, uh, thank you again for listening to the podcast, and as always, stay tuned to the next episode where there'll either be a movie decided by the roll of a die, an interview or the next episode of The Retrospective. As always, thanks for listening, and everybody be safe. Pack up your troubles in your own kit bag and smile, smile, smile. While you were Lucifer to light your fag, Smile, boys, that's the style. What's the use of worrying? It never was worthwhile. So, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile.
your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. While you the Lucifers are like your fag, smile boys, that's the style. What's the use of worrying? Troubles in your own game.